This is bittersweet. Our last sermon in our Genesis series, we will be coming back to Genesis in March, but uh, between September and February, we'll be doing the letters of John, who will deal uniquely with our fellowship in the body. So you can anticipate that um, as I am. But we turn our focus this morning for the last time for a little while to Genesis. Our main point, God created for his glory. This is the overarching theme of all of scripture. This is the reason he stepped into eternity. This is the reason why we are here. This is the reason why Jesus came and died. It is all working together for God's glory. He established the throne of creation for a man to rule as his administrator over creation. This purpose was temporarily thwarted by man's disobedience. But God cannot fail to bring about his will. His will will come to pass, and this kingdom will come through one line by God's power. And we will see this morning that it truly is by God's power and by his power alone. No efforts of mankind could have brought the Jewish race into existence. We'll see that from the very beginning, in and of itself, they were defective. God had to restore them in order for them to possibly produce children. And so God creates the Jewish race, and through him, or through the Jewish race, he brings about the Messiah, and the Messiah, the God-man, will rule over the kingdom of this earth, which God created in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 11, starting in verse 27, actually is part of the rest of Genesis. After primeval history, this is part of the patriarchal history. The chapter breaks after verse 32, but it could very well have broken after verse 26. This begins a new Toledot, and we've seen that word a few times. We'll look at it again. But we're using this as kind of a preface for what we are going to study when we come back to Genesis. The rest of Genesis is about how God carved out a special people for his purposes. After the nations, or after the whole world, rather, rebelled against God and he divided them into nations. God pulled out a special and unique nation which he would protect, which he would give promises and through whom he would fulfill his purpose for history. And so we look at these six or seven verses in three divisions, the genealogy present in Terah's line, the geography which they occupy, and then finally God's glory in bringing about these people. We start with the genealogy and look at the family. These are the records of the generations of Terah. This is a pattern we're very familiar with at this point. And this is the fifth, or this is moving from the fifth to the sixth Toledot. A Toledot is simply a record. A Toledot means generations. This is what happened to this line. The Toledot of the heavens and the earth explained to us what happened to creation. After God created it, what became of it? The Toledot of Adam described to us what became of Adam's line, and so on. So here, we have finished what came about of Shem's line last week, and we move into what comes of Terah's line. Now, 
We've progressed through these Toledots enough for you to see that this Toledot, the Toledot of Terra, is the focal point of Genesis. This is the most important part. This is why we have Genesis 1 through 11, was so that we could get to chapter 12. And this is where in chapter 12, we'll tell the Israelites why they ended up in Egypt and what their purpose is in coming out of Egypt. This is the focus of the book. And so I hope you will anticipate it this much through the next six months as we wait to come back to Genesis. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, once again, we have three sons listed, just like we did for Noah. Both Terah and Noah are the tenth in the world. Noah was the tenth of the old world, the tenth generation. Terah is now the tenth of the new world, from Noah to Terah. And so God is doing something different. We've now gotten through 10 generations. The old world only lasted 10 generations. In this generation, people might be looking around, seeing it's only been a few hundred years since the world began, whereas 10 generations in the old world took a few thousand years. People notice that things are changing and they're changing quickly. Things are happening faster and faster, and sons are dying before their fathers. Notice as well, we are now 21 generations from creation. Abram is going to give birth to Isaac. We're going to have him hinted at here in this passage. But once we get to chapter 12, we will see that he is the primary focus of Abraham's line. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to form the foundation of the Jewish race, through whom we will get the Messiah, through whom the kingdom will come where God's purposes will finally be restored to this earth. And so just as after the 10 generations in the old world, after 10 generations in the new world, we see the beginning of yet the world to come. The world to come in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in the kingdom, and people will come from east and west to recline at the table with them. Abram, now the 11th of the new world, is actually the beginning of the world that is still promised in the future. And so these three sons we see are very important. They represent for us the beginning of something new, something new that God is doing. And we see that they also are a very important part of Abram's family. Abram's children will get their spouses from the daughters or the granddaughters of his brothers. They are keeping it in the family, in other words. God is really carving out a special people. He's not mixing them with the other nations. He is procuring a people for his purposes. Now Abram's older brother, Haran, he's probably about 60 years older than Abram. He became the father of Lot. Lot was not uh, Lot was probably about the same age as Abram. Lot, as we see, is going to uh, have quite a troubled life, though Hebrews will tell us that he was justified by faith. He lives a very different kind of life from Abram. 
In Genesis 19.31, we see an episode occur with his daughters in which they try to, by human means, produce a seed. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. This is actually going to be a major theme in chapters 12 through, 15, uh, 12 through 25, preserving the family line. It seems impossible at times. And Abram also stumbles in trying to do this by himself, but we see here a disaster occur because Lot's daughters try to do this by themselves. We might ask why this is happening. In fact, last week, if you remember, I gave a brief defense of why Abram was not the one born when Terah was 70, but Haran was born. Most of the arguments against that is, why would Abram be worried about producing a child at 100 years old if his dad was 130 when he had him? That's because Abram is able to observe the world around him. And so are Lot's daughters. They're able to observe the world around them, but they're not able to observe the whole world. They're not able to see beyond their perspective here. And so they look at their city, Sodom and Gomorrah, being destroyed. And they say, now we have no one, and our father has no one. He has no sons. We have to save the family line. And so they do what is an abomination to the Lord. They produce a child for their father. From them come the Moabites and the Ammonites. Moab... His name comes from from the father. Mo, from, and Ab, father. The Ammonites, in Hebrew, the name is actually Ben-Ami. Ben, son of, Am, people, I, my, the son of my people. They are very proud of what they did. Proud of the fact that they produced a seed that would secure their family line. We see these lines end up becoming perennial enemies of Israel. When Israel exits Egypt and begins their travels into the promised land, these people try to stop them from coming. We'll see something similar occur with Edom. But this brings up a topic that is of utmost importance here in the last few verses of Genesis 11, and that is fertility. Children are dying before their fathers. Abram, though his father had him at 130, doesn't believe at 100 that he is going to be able to have children. They're experiencing an exponential decay curve in ages. They can see the pattern is rapidly progressing. But what they can't see is the leveling off. They're right at the point where ages are about to begin to level off. All they see is people are dying hundreds of years before their fathers. Not only that, but Terah having Abram at 130 seems like an anomaly. Because even Terah having Haran at 70 is an anomaly. After the flood, Arpachshad, Sheila, Eber, etc., they're all having children in their 30s. And we know what happened when Noah had children at 500. This introduced such terrible mutations into the gene pool 
the children began to die at even a tenth of the ages of their forefathers. The line is mutating. People are dying. The curse is taking hold in the new world. And not only that, but Abram's older brother Haran dies, probably before he hit the age of 100. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. So no wonder when we get to Genesis 17, although Abram's father had him when he was 130, Abram being 100 says, no way. I can look around and I can see the world around me. This isn't happening. Not only that, but his wife, as we saw in the reading this morning, is barren. Abram fell on his face and he laughed when God told him he would have a son. He said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This is ridiculous to him in his flesh because the world around him shows him that this would be ridiculous. But for God. And so Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now whenever there is a pronoun, it's sometimes difficult when you've got, for example here, two men to identify whose land was this. Was Terah born in the land of the Chaldeans or was Haran born in the land of the Chaldeans? But both of these phrases are meant to modify Haran. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah. Haran died in the land of his birth. The land of his birth was Ur of the Chaldeans. We don't know where Terah was born. He may have been from Ur of the Chaldeans. He may have been from elsewhere. The important thing is Haran was from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's this space just here, south of Babylon, right on the Persian Gulf. There's a little better picture of it. We've also seen this before, the ziggurat at Ur, which may have been built as a replica of the Tower of Babel or something similar to it with a similar function. And this is the temple to the moon god Sin. In Akkadian, his name was Nana. Another pronunciation of his name was Suen. This moon god of Ur was found in Ur and the city of Haran, 600 miles away and in Narab, just a few miles from Herat. These were the only places where this god was located centrally. He is a consort of Nikal, or in Sumerian, Ningal. His symbol is a crescent disc. He's the Lord of Oaths. He is associated with skin disease. This is a primary god in the city of Ur, where Terra and his family are. Here's an Akkadian relief of this moon god with his symbol there. The symbol is also adapted to bull horns. They begin to worship bulls. Here's a more modern artist rendering of Sin the moon god. He's also the father of Ishtar, which becomes another god that is worshipped in the land of Canaan when the Jews enter into Canaan. She's the goddess of love and war, the patron of Uruk, Nineveh, and Erbil. In Uruk, traditions of her father as Anu, in others, Sin the moon god. Sister of Erish Kigal, 
Her name is a generic term of goddess. Her symbols are the morning star and the evening star and the reset. Remember how we got here. We got here from Babel, the mother of harlots, as we find out in Revelation 17, who spread false religion throughout the whole world because false religion was centralized there when all of humanity was centralized. And as they spread out, they took these false gods with them. They began to worship them in different lands, and they developed many of the religions that we see today. There are religions still in the Middle East which worship, worship a moon god and which carry these symbols. Now, Islam is not the only one. This is the Hindu god Krishna, again associated with the bull. And you can see on his forehead the crescent moon with the morning star. These are just symbols that carry through ancient traditions. This is the harlotry of Babylon. It even follows into the birth of Europe, where Zeus transforms himself into a bull and seduces the woman Europa. This all stems from Babel. And the Jews are no stranger to this either. The Jews themselves encounter this sort of idolatry in the land that they are going to and in the lands that they have come from in Egypt. They are getting back to their sinful roots, and God has tried to pull them out. Remember, he is pulling them out from the nations, and they are supposed to separate themselves. In Joshua 24, when they are about to go into the land, they are reminded that they are supposed to separate from the people. This will be the purpose of the law, to separate them, so that God can have them for his purposes. Joshua 24.2 says, uh, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram and his father Terah and his brothers Nahor and Haran were idolaters. They lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and they did not know the God of the Bible. They did not know the God who had scattered them, they did not know the God who had brought Noah through the flood. But God was about to step in and remind them. God was about to pull them out. Now remember here, Sin, the moon god, is present in two main areas, Ur and Haran. These are not near each other. Ur is down near the Persian Gulf, and Haran is up near Turkey, north of the land of Canaan at the top of the Mesopotamian Valley. It'll be no surprise that when Terah leaves Ur, he goes and settles in Haran. He brings with him his false religions. Just to give you a sense of how far this is, this is the distance of Montana across. If you've ever driven across Montana Strait, this seems like it takes forever. So we can imagine what their journey was like. Now, Abraham and Nahor, these two brothers who didn't die, they took wives for themselves. Abram's wife was Sarai. We're not given more detail about her in this uh, passage or about her lineage. 
and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran. Again, Haran's children were contemporaries of Abram and Nahor. Haran was the older brother. Haran was the father of Milcah and Iscah. We don't know anything about Iscah. This was probably meaningful to the Hebrews who first received this from Moses, though it has seemed to lose its meaning for us in this daughter of Iscah. There is a tradition that says this is Sarai, but this seems to be a search for an answer rather than evidence for an answer. We don't know who Iscah is, but she is one of the three children named of Haran. Oops. Sarai's name comes from the Akkadian Sharate, which means queen, specifically the name of Sin's moon goddess. And Milka, the Akkadian Malkatu, is the word for princess, which was the daughter of, uh, of the moon god Sin, whose name was also Ishtar. They are naming their children in Ur, after these gods that they are serving. Here's a visual of Terah's family tree. We see he had three sons, Abram, Haran, and Nahor. Haran had three children, Lot, Iscah, and Milcah, and Nahor married Milcah, his niece. And Abram marries his half-sister, Sarai. We're told about this in Genesis chapter 20. But here we get to a big problem. Just as children are dying before their parents, now we have another first in scripture, a woman who can't give birth. If this happened at all before this, it's not mentioned in scripture. This is the first mention in scripture of barrenness. And this again is a big problem because in the Toledot that preceded, we saw the seed line, the savior, comes through Abram. And now Abram's wife can't have a child. This is why the author repeats himself, she was barren. That means the same thing as she had no child or could have no child. This is a big problem. Because if the seed line ends, the promise ends. If the seed line ends, we can't get from Abram to the Savior. All of chapters 12 through 25 focus on this issue, how God restores Sarai so that she is able to produce a seed, not by her own efforts, but by God's intervention. Now we're told a bit of the lands that they go to. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter, and Lot his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran, and they settled there. Now there is one issue to clear up here. Haran, the son of Terah, is not the same as Haran, the city in which they lived. It is not likely that the one was named for the other in whichever order, because these are different words. The English doesn't pick that up as well. I'll zoom in a bit here. You can see one has a he and one has a het. These letters are distinctive and they mean different things. Haran, the son of Terah, means mountain man. And Haran, the city, means a dry place. 
phonemes matter a lot. Just because they look the same doesn't mean they are the same. No one would confuse Austria with Australia. These are different. Iran and Iraq. Maybe these look similar, but they're not. Monaco and Morocco, Niger, Nigeria. Slovakia, Slovenia, Switzerland, and Swaziland. Just because they look the same doesn't mean one is named after the other. Just because one is a place and one is a name doesn't mean one was named after the other. The name Marilyn and the state of Marilyn have no correlation. Edmund, the name, and Edmunds perhaps has a correlation, but if you name your child Edmund, doesn't mean it was named after the city. My first name is Everett. I was not named after the city. Heidi and Haiti, Everett and Everest, Monaco and Monica, Javan and Japan. Just because they look the same doesn't mean they are the same. Haran probably never set foot in the location Haran. He was born in Ur of the Chaldeans and he died in Ur of the Chaldeans before they ever went to Haran. The problem is going to Haran was an act of defiance in two ways. One, they didn't go as far as they were supposed to go. And two, the wrong person took the head of the travels and that person wasn't supposed to go at all. Here it says that Terah took three people, Abram his son, Lot his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law. Sarai, we see, is his daughter-in-law and his own daughter. Genesis 20, 12. Sarah actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, Terah, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. She is Abram's half-sister. Nahor does not or is not listed as having gone with them, but we see his children there later. Genesis 29 Jacob says to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. So Nahor's children also end up in Haran, even though they don't, or they apparently do not go with Terah from Ur to Haran. They migrate later. Even in 1131, we see that their purpose, their intended direction was different than where they ended up settling. They left Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. We're not told in Genesis why they did this, probably because the climax is coming in God's words in chapter 12. But in Acts, when Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recounts this divine history, he says something very interesting that helps us fill in, our, fill in the gaps and fill in our understanding. He said, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, not to Terah, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. This seems like a probable promise from God. 
everyone is dispersing from Babel. This dispersion probably was not over by the time of Abram. God says, come here, I've got a special place for you. Problem is, God told Abram, leave your country and your relatives. Now, naturally, Abram would bring his wife, Sarai, but he should have left Terah at home, and he should have left Lot at home. He most certainly should have been the one leading the group, not being led by Terah. Abram probably announced his intention to leave, and Terah says, all right, let's go, family, saddle up. I'm the father, I take charge. Problem is, Abraham is being introduced to a different father. He followed the wrong one. They went out together. From Ur of the Chaldeans, in order to claim that land that God had promised to Abram on different conditions. All right, God will take the land, but we'll take it our way. Thank you very much. God stops them. They went as far as Haran, and they settled there, probably under the influence of Terah. Abram, had he been obedient to God and gone alone, would have continued on to Canaan and entered into the promised land. But because he was being led by Terah, his father, and not God, the father, he ended up stopping with him. This isn't much different than what happened to Babel. God told them to go and scatter throughout all of the earth to populate the whole earth. The problem wasn't that they went to Shinar, it's that they stopped in Shinar. The problem was that they went about their own will rather than God's will in Shinar. Just like Terah went as far as Haran and then settled there, so they went as far as the lands of Shinar and they settled there. This was contrary to the will of God. And so they are delayed. They don't get to go right into the promised land. This should ring a bell. Perhaps tip the cards to Moses' purpose in writing this account to the Israelites, who are at this time being disobedient to God in the wilderness. And because they are not being obedient to God in the wilderness, there's going to be a delay in their entering. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation, who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are speaking against me. So say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, and your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land into which, or in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. It's no surprise then, 
when they left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and then from there, after his father died, God had him move to his country in which you are now living. Stephen saying this to the Sanhedrin while they are in Jerusalem. It wasn't until Terah died that God brought Abram out of Haran, out of that idolatry that he was supposed to leave behind in Ur, that they planted in Haran, God kept it out of the land. Just to remind you of what we were studying last year, we didn't have slides for it then, so it was much harder to follow along with. In Jude 5, Jude desired to remind this church in the last days, though you know all things once for all, the canon was complete, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. There are consequences for not being obedient to the Lord. There are consequences for falling out of faith. They didn't get to enter the land which they were promised. Genesis 11.32, the days of Terah were 205 years old and Terah died in Haran. Moses is dispensing with the old line. Terah, who was an idolater, who was not called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, not promised a land. And he pulls Abram, even out of his own family, to become God's own family. And this, as we'll see, is all for God's glory. He has his purpose, first of all, of a seed. We've traced this through these dispensations the dispensation of innocence and conscience, and then the dispensation of human government after the flood, where they were judged for their failure to obey God, and they were spread across the earth. And now in this divine grace of Israel, they are given a promise. And this promise is a restatement of the seed line promise to Eve. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Moses is recapitulating in the text. He's telling us what occurred before Haran died, when they were still living in the land of Ur. God's promise, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. We see a parallel between the purpose of the builders of Babel. They wanted to make their name great. God was going to make his name great by elevating a different name. Not the biggest and the best of the nations, but the smallest not even one of the 70 that broke out of Babel, but 10 generations from Babel. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
God cursed all the families of the earth in Babel. That was a curse. It was a blessing, but it was a curse. He spread them out so that they would not consume themselves in sin in the same way as the whole population was consumed in sin before the flood. And this is so he could carve out Israel to bless them and then bless the whole world in them. This is part of God's creation purpose. Genesis 1.28, God blessed mankind. He blessed Adam. He blessed Eve through whom the race would come. His goal, his purpose, is to bless mankind whom he has placed over creation. And that blessing should result in rest, rest with God. This was interrupted by sin, by disobedience. Obedience brings communion, fellowship with God. When you obey his word, you demonstrate that you love him. When you are obedient, you are in fellowship with him. When you are disobedient, you need restoration. And that restoration must come through another because you are the one needing restoration. One who needs restoration can't restore himself. So for us today in the church age, we look to Jesus. His blood has been shed on our behalf. And so if we are out of fellowship through disobedience, we turn to that one, the one and only who can restore us to fellowship. Abram is going to have to turn to God for restoration. See that God gave him no inheritance in the land that he brought him, not even a foot of ground. You see, this was apparently the easy promise for God to fulfill. Everyone is dispersing throughout the whole world. There's plenty of land for the taking. God promised to bring him into another land, and yet Abram never sees any of that land for himself. All he receives is one burial plot that he pays through the nose for to bury Sarai in. This wasn't part of his inheritance. He had to purchase this himself. God promised that he would give him the land. Yet the one promise that God does fulfill to Abram in his lifetime is the one that seemed most impossible. Because Abram was 100 and had no child, and Sarai was 90 and had no child. And yet the one thing Abram does see is that one promise, that one gift that he laughed at. Yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. You see, we often quote Genesis 15, 6, that Abram believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We ignore the content of that faith. The content of that faith was when Abram believed that God would give him a son. Little did he know at that time that the result of that son would be the Messiah. See, the content of faith throughout the ages has changed based on God's promises, based on what he has revealed to that point. But the basis of that faith is always in Jesus, the Messiah. For them, the one who was to come. 
for us the one who has come already. And he is the savior of the world. And he can only come through God's intervention. Man could not produce his own seed to save himself. Man was hopelessly lost. Man was dying and the signs of it were everywhere. Sarai was barren. She had no child. How do we fix this problem? We don't. God does. Only God can fix this problem. This is the problem of bringing death to life. This is squarely in the camp of God. Romans 4.19 says, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, speaking of Abram. And he also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. He recognized that there was death. There was death all around him. Generations were dying younger. Sarah in her womb was dead. Death in scripture always speaks of separation. Separation of the soul from the body, physical death. Separation of the soul from God, spiritual death. Separation from the body's ability to reproduce itself, reproductive death. Sarah's death was already spreading into the next generations. It seemed to be progressing so fast that it didn't even wait until the child was born before the next generation could be seen dead. Humanity was nosediving. God spoke in to that humanity and promised life. Genesis 17 God said to Abram, as for, your, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. This is a parallel with the promise given to Eve and to Adam. In the curse on the serpent, which came just before the curse on man, promising death to humanity, God promised that the woman would have a seed, that life would come from her. He then specifies that her reproductive process would be amplified in order to maintain the race. And we see that that amplification without the intervention of God is quickly coming to an end. They can't keep up. Even though they are having children faster and faster, now they're dealing with the issue of barrenness. So God steps in once again, just like he did in Genesis 3. And just as then, he steps in and he asserts his authority, his sovereign authority over the issue. Man called his wife's name Eve in recognition of what God had done, because she was the mother of all living. God renames Sarah that she would be a queen. She would be a queen of his people. And from her, not by any maid of hers, not by any niece or nephew or anything else, but through Sarah as well as through Abram. And only by that union, God would produce a seed. Only in the womb that was dead, 
would God bring life. Because there was absolutely no way for man to participate in this salvation. This was by God's work and God's work alone. And so God is the divine creator of Israel. And that's why when he addresses himself to Israel, he can call himself the bearer, the creator, who created out of nothing. Not a reformation of what's there, but giving life where there is death, something that only he can do. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. This is not a nation by natural reproduction. This is a nation by divine intervention. And it foreshadows the divine intervention to come in the virgin birth of the Messiah. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, this is a different kind of birth. This is a virgin birth, whereas Sarah's was not a virgin birth. Sarah produced a human child, but without the intervention of God, that human child would have been impossible. Here, Mary produces a divine child, giving her human nature to him, and God giving his divine nature to him. This man in hypostatic union became the savior that was promised first to Eve and then to Sarah. And so in Romans 4.20, we read yet with respect to the promises of God. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. This gives us the other side of the coin to Abram's believing in God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also accredited to him as righteousness. This man who comes from Israel is not only the savior of the world, but he is coming one day to reign as king. This will fulfill God's creation purpose. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. God created a throne, a throne which his creation would sit on to give glory to God. But notice even in this creation, God had his eye on the future. Why was man created in God's image? Not only so we could have fellowship with him, be able to communicate with him, but because he knew that one day he would step in to time and space, put himself in the body of a man, and die on behalf of man. He created from the very beginning a fit vessel for the salvation and the rulership of the world. Because Adam was not fit to rule over creation. Abram would not be fit to rule over creation. David himself. As mighty as David was, he wasn't even fit to build the house of God. 
but God would use these fallible men to bring about the perfect man. Moving step by step, challenge by challenge, through the line of Christ, showing that by no other means but by God alone could this ever have come to be. In every single generation, they face a different issue, a different struggle, a different promise that man can't rectify himself. This is the ultimate question to who can save us. To answer it in the negative, not man. Man cannot. But God can and God will. And God does in his son, Jesus Christ. And so all the way from the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1.26, where we see the throne, to the very end of Genesis, Genesis 49.10, we see this theme of the kingdom. We see the passing of the baton from one generation to the next, fulfilling the promise of redemption and the promise of dominion. Of Jacob's child, we see of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, from these nations that God has divided, this divine honeycomb of people groups. God has chosen one to establish the throne over this creation. Once again, it's a creation of his own making. Carved out for the purpose of bringing in the kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6 says a child will be born to us. Speaking of natural production, it is going to come through the process of childbirth. And a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A title that cannot be given to man. Eternal Father. A duration that cannot apply to man. And Prince of Peace. There will be no end to his increase, or to the increase of his government, or of peace, and specifically that eternal dominion must be on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We know from Galatians 3.16, or rather, we have confirmed through Galatians 3.16 that when God made these promises to Abram, he was looking towards his own son, Jesus. Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed, and does, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And so when we come to the end of this civilization, we see that it is that one, the one who holds the scepter of Judah, the one who comes from the line of David, that one and that one alone is worthy to take the title deed of this earth and to begin to rule. John began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. This book is the title deed to the earth. 
one of the elders said to him, Stop weeping, and behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And as those seals are opened, the last one opens trumpets, and then the trumpets open the bowl judgments that bring in the final judgment before Jesus takes the throne over this earth. And in Revelation 11.15, we see as the last trumpet is sounded that Satan's grip on creation is loosed. He has lost control of the earth. He'll have three and a half years to rain terror on Israel. And once again, Jesus, bringing them through the fire, will carry them safely to the end. He will sift them like wheat. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, will enter living into the kingdom. But in Revelation 15, just before the midpoint of the tribulation, just before Israel goes through the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, we see the seventh angel sound. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that would conclude world history. It begins here in Genesis chapter 12 with God's plan through Israel. And it ends in Revelation with God's plan for Israel. So we see that God has created for his glory. He established the throne of creation for a man to rule as his administrator over creation. And that man is Jesus Christ. This kingdom will come through one line through Israel by God's power and not by man's. And he, the seed, will rule the earth. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. We're thankful that as we look at the beginning, we can have confidence in the ending that you have also predicted. As we look at these promises that you gave to Abram, the promises that seemed impossible that you fulfilled, we see that the promises that are more simple must be fulfilled in the end. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. We pray for all these promises to come to pass. We pray that we see you any day now and that you would come in glory in your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.